I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending July 2nd. This episode is brought to you by Power Integrations, Innovation in Power Conversion. For close to two decades, EE Times has been publishing an annual report called the Silicon 60, a list of 60 startups in the technology industry that merit special attention. Last year, we expanded the list to include 100 companies. We just published our second edition of the Silicon 100. In this episode, we talk with our old colleague and friend, Peter Clark, the empresario behind the Silicon 100. After more than 20 years writing about startups and compiling these lists, he's got plenty to say about startups and about what this year's crop suggests about where the worlds of technology and finance may be heading. The business of startups is past being just a business mechanism, and even beyond being an entire financial ecosystem. It's now a subculture with such huge egos, such high stakes, and such boggling sums of money being exchanged, it was ripe for parody. And in fact, there is one. It's called Silicon Valley. We have the resources to take what you have done to the global level. I'm prepared to give you $200,000. $600,000 for 10% of your company. $10 million. We had a guy in here in almost the exact same situation. Take the money or keep the company. He shot himself because he turned down the money? Yeah. Or no, no he took the money. Or no. I, no, he did not. I don't, you know what? I don't remember. But whatever it was, he regretted it so much that he ended up shooting himself and now he's blind. Yep, that seems just about right. That was from the promotional video for the HBO TV show, Silicon Valley. Before we get to our discussion about the Silicon 100 and the top 100 startups to watch in 2021, here's a rundown of some of the articles we've published in EE Times this week. The way we use computers is changing rapidly, especially as we rely more on artificial intelligence and machine learning. That has serious ramifications for computer architectures, including memory systems. Cheap, fast, voluminous, dynamic memory is gradually being replaced in many instances with non-volatile, solid-state drives, SSDs. Moving data around may be the single most prosaic things computers do, but it is becoming more and more important to do it as efficiently as possible as we increasingly adopt SSDs. The NVMe standard is evolving to enable all of it, and there's a new iteration of the standard. We explain what's in that new iteration and what it means. And speaking of AI, it's beginning to permeate everything electronic, but it's still a new discipline, and there are multiple different ways to implement AI and machine learning. It's not clear how to compare one AI with another. There's an evolving set of benchmarks called MLPERF, and the latest suite of comparisons just came out. Find out how machine learning contenders like Google, NVIDIA, Graphcore, and Habana performed. A few months back, EE Times began a new feature called The Artful Engineer. Over the years, EE Times editors have talked to thousands upon thousands of people in the electronics industry, and it seemed to us that there is a disproportionately large number of engineers who are also musicians and artists. So, EE Times contributor Junko Yoshida decided to start exploring the places where engineering and art intersect. 
In the latest episode, Junko speaks with an industrial designer who has traveled all over the world to get inspiration for the art he makes for himself and for the products he designs for NXP semiconductors. Check out the entire Artful Engineer series. For all of these stories and more industry news and analysis, visit our website at eetimes.com. If you're on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left. You'll see links to all the stories we mentioned today. In the history of business, the startup phenomenon is a recent development. Well, for some value of recent, that takes into account the fact that companies as we know them have been around for centuries and that there's been a constant stream of new companies all along. But startups do have distinguishing features from other new companies, and the main distinctions have to do with money. Now, all along, new companies have had pretty much the same options for raising money. One option is stock markets, where a young company can go and sell shares. Selling stock can be an effective mechanism for raising funds, but an initial public offering works best when the idea for the new company is already pretty mature. It might already have a product or service that is already defined well enough that it can be quickly manufactured or implemented. But what if it doesn't? Your average stock market investors usually want assurance that they'll make at least some money on the deal, starting pretty much right away. If a young enterprise isn't in a position to deliver that, that's when the company needs someone willing to invest longer term, someone who's willing to take on a little more risk than your average stock market investor. And who might that be? Often enough, that's dad. James Watt borrowed money from his father to get started. So did Thomas Edison. The list of inventors prominent and obscure who borrowed money from family members is very long. Now, an alternative is going to a bank for a loan, but bank loans tend to be mechanisms for funding small businesses. Most major banks now have investment arms that don't just loan money, but take ownership positions in companies that look like they might grow into national or international businesses. And of course, there is now a thriving community of private investors, venture capitalists eager to bankroll new companies that have those national or international prospects. So that's one of the key distinctions between, say, a new restaurant or a new plumbing services company on the one hand, and a modern startup on the other. The modern startup typically needs time to get its product ready for the commercial market, and it typically has big investors looking for substantial payoffs. And a lot of startups tend to be involved in one way or another with science and technology. EE Times has been covering tech startups for ages, and we've been publishing the definitive list of startups worth watching for nigh on 20 years now. The latest is the 2021 Silicon 100, which is available in our store on the website at eetimes.com. Peter Clark has been presiding over these annual lists. Clark is a freelance editor and journalist with a long association with EE Times, and we're pleased to welcome him back to the weekly briefing to talk about the Silicon 100. I asked him to define what the Silicon 100 is exactly. Well, the Silicon 100 is a list of startups that uh, I and others help compile for EE Times. And um, we do it because um, probably we've done it for 21 iterations now. And um, possibly without a little bit of encouragement like this, a lot of these startups wouldn't get any ink or pixels. So it, it's fun to go and look at uh, these startup companies because they potentially represent the future of our industry. Obviously, some 
good things come out of the, the, the large established companies, but a lot of the good things come out of uh, startups, and uh, we try to keep a finger on, on the pulse this way. That, that's not to say that somehow that the hundred companies we we highlight are sort of you know our tips for financial success or or, or, or guaranteed to to win the market with their technology. We're, we're not claiming that. They're just interesting companies that we've written about in the past, and and uh, we think they're worth going on the list. Companies that uh, so they're indicators. It suggests what at least some people think they might eventually be able to monetize. Uh, R&D stuff that uh, ordinarily might stay R&D, that's one thing. But if somebody thinks they can actually monetize it, make a make a business case out of uh, these new technologies, it's an indication of technology trends, right? Right. Um, I mean, I, I think um, one of the things we've learned over the many years of doing this, and, and something that I think is very well understood in the United States, is that market pull uh, beats technology push every time. Uh, and <laughs> it is the case that new technologies can open up possibilities, uh, stuff that comes out of universities, physics laboratories, and so on. But um, the really successful startups are the ones which see a market opportunity and uh, go after that uh, wholeheartedly, ruthlessly even. Do you recall 20 years ago what the the incipient technology trends might have been uh, and uh, – what it, what they are now? Well, oh, that's, a t- that's a tough one. I mean, I think we were looking at a lot of developments around CMOS and the ability to encapsulate communication standards in CMOS, a lot of the sort of Bluetooth areas and, and some other comm standard. There was a lot of work on multi-core processors and uh, DSP, uh, what there wasn't at that time was yet um, much activity in, in neural networks, for example. Um, right. Because, you know, you could put about four or eight cores on, on, a, on a chip, and you're really just looking to kind of beef up the uniprocessor approach uh, back then. Um, I think we looked at quite a lot of stuff in the display sector, which um, perhaps, you know... You know, we, we looked at, at companies we thought might come through and, and which didn't quite make it. Um, and there are plenty of startups that um, are, are f- first movers but don't quite capture the market. Uh, um, there are companies which did uh, multi-image sensor cameras. that they could, they could see a computational advantage in doing that, but they're not necessarily the companies that have gone on to put three and four cameras on the back of a Samsung phone or, a, or an Apple phone. So my sense is that uh, the past few years, uh, the the Silicon 60 and now the Silicon 100 um, has been weighted with a lot of companies that are involved in um, artificial intelligence, machine learning. There seems to be uh, an increase in the number of companies, whereas, you know, we, a moment ago you were talking about some of the stuff from maybe 20 years ago. Uh, a lot of it was logic. It seems that there's an um, um, increasing number of companies that are into RF and mixed signal, wireless. And it also uh, seems that there's a, a greater emphasis on power 
whether it's for um, handling battery technologies or whether it's for fast charging. Uh, I don't recall seeing companies of that nature five, six, seven years ago. Okay. I, I, I think we were, we were kind of looking for them. Um, I, I think what there has been in the last five to ten years, well, certainly the last five years, there's been an explosion of investment in hardware. Um, mm. You may remember, if we go back 10 years, there was um, uh, the VCs fell out of love with hardware. They backed a lot of digital CMOS companies, and uh, they couldn't all be winners. Lots of them were losers. And the VCs were looking, saying, you know, we need to get into other companies like Google, Facebook, um, in internet service providers. We don't want to be tied up in hardware. Um, well, you know, it's it's true that the barriers to entry are lower in, in, in those softer uh, technologies, but that means there's a lot more lot more competition. <laughs> so the, the VCs <laughs> ha have come back to hardware, I think, and um, I, I think it's like a fan-out explosion of, of, of technology. I mean, when I started in this business, technology was for uh, military, aerospace, industrial, it hadn't moved into consumer yet. Now, electronics is all pervasive. The automobile becomes a computer with wheels. Um, we're talking about augmented reality, virtual reality, digitization. People living their lives um, more or less on the computer or on the, the phone. Um, yeah. This means that there is resource and money and markets that want to explore every opportunity to create wealth and well-being. Um, you know, medical is another example. Uh, you know, medical 20 years ago was bandages and needles and biopharma. Now we're looking at uh, Fitbits and tools on your, your, your smartphone. Uh, and uh, electronics is enabling all of this. But it, it's moving into displays and, and uh, sensors and MEMS and all these other areas. Uh, so I think there's been an explosion there and an explosion of investment. Um, and power, of course, is the big issue that faces, in a way, faces our planet. Um, you know, if we cannot get the power consumption down on all of these tools which we choose to give ourselves, you know, we will be uh, burning the planet up. So um, power is and energy harvesting and things like this are going to be a big drive for the foreseeable future. Um, so I, I think that kind of explains that. Um, so what about the overturn in the list? You would intuit that it's natural, but uh, I think you mentioned that you have uh, roughly a third every year that falls out replaced by uh, a new set of companies. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are some blips on that. When we went from 60 to 100, obviously, we, we brought in a, a, a large cohort to, to make that happen. And it is a natural process. I, I, there's no prescriptive limit or set of numbers which... which Make sure what that what happens, um, but we we do retire companies off the list when they get you know beyond a certain age, or perhaps when they spent um, a, a reasonable period of time on the list, um, or when they go public. We we tend to favour uh, companies that are private, um, and we kind of feel that going public is a usually a badge of maturity for the, these startups. So. 
for all of these reasons, we're, we're dropping companies off the list, and um, we uh, spend the whole year kind of looking at, at, at announcements from startups and, and uh, sort of trying to work out who, who would be worth keeping an eye on. Um, so that is a natural process. And um, the other thing is, I would say, is I tend to view that uh, a startup which announces its existence founded in 2021 or whatever is probably not worth trying to follow for the first two or three years. They're not, they're, they probably won't make many announcements unless they are a very strange beast that kind of leaps fully formed into existence with hundreds of millions of dollars and can hit the ground running. A lot of them start with two and three people, a couple of million dollars. They have a series of um, benchmarks they have to achieve to, to get the next round of funding from their their backers. And they're not going to say too much for the first couple of years. So I, I, we tend to favor companies that are a little bit, they're still startups, but they're a little bit more mature. They're starting to want to go out to the public, uh, to, to a customer base, and they're starting to make announcements and starting to pop stuff up on their, their website and in their social media feeds. So that kind of gives you a flavor that, um, you know, we're looking at companies that are maybe two, three years old, seven years old, once they get beyond about 10, they've probably had to rejig their business model a couple of times <laughs> to still be drawing down the money. And that's not to say that they cannot suddenly hit the magic formula and, and go great guns uh, at that age. They can, but um, maybe that's another yeah. story. That's one of the things I kind of love about the list you compiled is that it shows the range of what a startup might be and that includes age. I mean, you don't have a lot of those startups that are basically an idea and a couple of guys looking for money, but you do have a lot of startups that were that were created in just the last three to five years. Um, they've got some operations enough going on to attract more investment, uh, which which gives you confidence that they've actually they might actually have something. You know, I think of a startup as something, a company that's three to five years old, but you actually have a few companies on the list that were founded in 2013, 2012, 2010. Um, it's hard to think of a 12-year-old company that's that's been, you know, cranking along for that long as a startup, but I, I clearly they qualify. Sometimes, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes it's the case that a, that a, 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 a young PhD student and his supervisor or whatever will form a company um, in 2012 or whatever, and for three years they kind of do nothing with the company, and the guy carries on, or the, or the gal, carry on doing their research, making connections, networking, taking papers to, to learned conferences, and only then do they get some money, give themselves job titles, CEO, CTO. And so is that company three years old or is it zero? Um, so, you know, it, right, it, right, right. it's all a little bit arbitrary sometimes. Um, so, you know, that's why it's, it's not good to over fixate on the detail of, of, you know, one particular company. But But I think when you look at the Silicon 100 in its totality, um, I think it gives a very good picture of the breadth of the technology wavefront, of where a lot of the focus is 
you know, in areas like AI, LIDAR, autonomous vehicles. Um, and I think, you know, that's a, a great way to, to, to think about the future. Now, you know, that's not to say that there might not be another company that will win the LIDAR market or uh, an established company, a Bosch or, or somebody else might just suddenly come in and hoover it up. These things happen, but uh, it just simulates thinking about the industry as a whole. So one of the things I'm tickled about in this latest edition is the concept of peak AI. Tell us what you meant by that. Well, uh, I think we have about, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but I think we have about 25 or, or 29 AI companies on the list who all think they are going to win the market um, either in the data center space, some of the bigger chips and the more mm -hmm. expensive uh, startups uh, are, are shooting for the, the data center business. There's many others say they're going to do AI at the edge. Um, history tells us there's going to be one or two victors in e each space. And, um, you know, these other companies, I'm afraid, will miss out in one way or another. I mean, I'm reminded of the time when... Uh, People wanted to put uh, Bluetooth on CMOS, and there were, you know, 40 companies who were all going to be CMOS RF companies. Well, you know, two or three won through. One or two got bought out by big companies to to, to sort of bring in the talent and, and some of the, the patent portfolios. And you know, it, it, it that, that's the way the market works. So uh, the, the observation this year was that. Again, there was no deliberation about this. After the, we'd done the shuffle of, of, of the companies, it turns out there was the same number of AI companies on the list this year as last year. You know, and they're maturing, of course. Time is moving on. Some of those companies were now five years old, six years old, seven years old. Um, and so it's inevitable, probably, that uh, you know, there are companies getting bought out all the time. Uh, Intel likes to, to, to go in and pay a couple of billion and grab a company. Um, there are others getting acquired by, by Qualcomm and others. And uh, so that list is probably going to start to dwindle now. So I wanted to talk a little bit about moving on and off of the startup list. So as a, as a brief aside, I grew up in New York State and SPAC uh, meant the Saratoga Performing Arts Center. Um, and, and so when, when, when all of a sudden SPAC kept hitting the headlines this year, I had to go and do some research. <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, what do you think about the SPAC phenomena? How is that, how is that, uh, is that affecting, um, uh, the, the, the startup space? Well, in your estimation? Yeah, it is. And I, I think there was a precursor to the SPAC phenomenon, um, I suppose we should add, we should define what a SPAC is now that I've I've misidentified I, it. I think it stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Mm -hmm. I may be wrong, but but that and that is the spirit of what yep. it is. Um, and I, I, I there were there was a sort of a, a precursor phenomenon. There were uh, two or three companies which got onto the Silicon One Hundred list, um, even though they were public, uh, and uh, a couple of them reversed into Australian uh, listed companies. So uh, I think certainly in one case, it was a mining company that the mine was was running out of whatever ore they were mining. So the, the owners of this mining company said, well, what are we going to do? 
and they, in in essence, made themselves into a SPAC and acquired. Um, I'm trying to remember which one it was, but 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 it might have been Weebit or it might have been Brainchip, but uh, but both Weebit and Brainchip reversed into Australian listed companies, and this was a way for. Uh, the startups to raise a bit of capital because they could go out to the, the shareholders and, and ra raise some capital. Um, but the downside for those companies is they are listed companies. They're governed by Australian stock exchange rules, which means they have to be quite uh, open and forthcoming um, about prospects for the company and some of the things they're doing. Um, so that happened uh, three, four years ago. Um, and I don't pretend to understand what the great advantage of a SPAC is. I, I suspect there may be a slight or possibly insignificant financial advantage to um, listing a company on NASDAQ um, when you don't know what the business is going to be. I mean, you, may, you might be able to save yourself some, mm. some, some payments to, to NASDAQ, but... Um, but essentially, I, I guess the people that back those SPAC companies before they have made an acquisition are, are betting on the executives to spot a winner. Right. Because they've got no business record or track record to go on. All they know is this SPAC is in the market to buy a company sometime soonish. So they must look at the executives and say, these guys know what they are doing. Um, and lo and behold, they go and buy a company and the stock price pops and we're off to the races but um so for, for reasons we discussed earlier uh just because a company goes public like that i'm not necessarily going to say they you know they cannot by definition any longer be a startup if they're still two years old or three years old and still essentially doing their development work i guess they're a startup but um uh, it, so it is starting to cloud the market. You can't say private equals startup, public equals uh, mature company. But uh, things are always changing. So again, the uh, yeah, again, again, the issue isn't the definition of what a startup is. The issue is what is this company doing that is interesting that might be indicative of where where technology is going. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and one of the things we did different this year is, is we put a little bit more time uh, into displaying the Silicon 100 by way of uh, the technology categories where they're operating, which I, I think just helps uh, underline the breadth of, of the technology wavefront, if you like. Um, and uh, so that, that was kind of an interesting exercise. So, uh, did anything pop out at you during as you were researching um, this issue of the of the Silicon One Hundred? There is an increasing level of um, sophistication and abstraction and application specificity in the technology and product development mm. that's coming forward. There are almost no sort of building block type technologies left. Uh, you know, more and more of, of the companies which we're seeing on the Silicon 60 are doing some sort of combination of, of, of hardware and firmware and, and sometimes AI. 
uh, and you know even things like you know time of flight or lidar some some of these sensor technologies they're being crafted for very specific uh, market opportunities and the lidar for 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 autonomous vehicles is very different to lidar for drones or for industrial applications uh, gesture recognition is different on the phone to um, to what might be used in, in in cabin automobile application and and probably those companies don't necessarily have crossover between those markets even though you'd think the technology is is common um, but you know to win those markets you have to pay attention to a lot of detail and uh, and really craft and and polish the technology to 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 suit the market going through the list of this year's uh, uh, companies I kind of detected the same thing I, it, the word that uh, that popped into my head was uh, nichification. Um, there are companies that are, are really, really focused, uh, even when they're all in the same category, they're, they're not necessarily in the same business. That's right. That's right. I, I think another thing which uh, we draw attention to in, in the Silicon 100 uh, under the, the 12 to delve category, but one of the things I noticed is that there's two or three um, Chinese startups which are clearly um, sort of going after some markets that have up until now been dominated by U.S. companies such as AMD, NVIDIA, and um, and very often they're doing it by recruiting um, Chinese engineers and middle executives, senior executives back to work for a Chinese company. These are people who who've perhaps did a first degree in, in China, a second degree in California, have done 10, 15, 20 years in Silicon Valley, risen to prominence within some of these companies, and now they're going back to, to, uh, to, to turn the handle and, and, and do it again in competition. And uh, some of these companies, of, of, of course, you know, in, in China, there is a, a, a clear move to decouple from the West and to establish um, world-class uh, alternatives. Um, these companies have a good chance of succeeding, at least in their domestic market, if not in a global market. Well, fantastic. So uh, any last thoughts before we let you get back to your, I don't know, what, what do you do in England? Crumpets and tea, is that it? I'm, I'm off to play my guitar. Uh, <laughs> so um, so I should be going to a pub and playing my guitar, which sounds pretty good. Um, any last thoughts? Um, well, the, the other thing I would say is that... Um, if this is a year of peak AI, and it, it may not be, but if it is, we can already probably see what the next big um, investment draw will be, and that is quantum computing. I think there's four companies on our list this year. Oh, right, yeah. And um, at this point, it's not easy to know exactly how quantum computing will play out in, in different markets. Um, it may well be highly vertically integrated and provided as a service, um, which may make it slightly less relevant to to electronic engineers per se, but um, it has such a enormous potential impact that uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of activity around that in the years to come. Um, so um, yeah, we continue to uh, to kind of monitor the situation, and hopefully we can continue to to bring iterations of the Silicon 100 to to readers. 
All right. Thank you, Peter. We're really excited to, to check out, uh, as we record this, we haven't published the uh, Silicon 100 for this year yet, but uh, when we air, uh, it will have been published. I, I'm, I'm eager to see who's on the list. Very good. Thank you. That was Peter Clark, editor of the Silicon 100. You can get the latest version of the Silicon 100 from the EE Times store at eetimes.com. And now let's talk about unicorns and the boggling amount of money that's being thrown around out there. About a dozen years ago, investors were looking for the first companies that would merit investments of $1 billion. They were, at the time, as rare as unicorns, and that name stuck. In 2012, the world saw its first unicorn. In fact, it saw its first 11. Year by year since then, the number of unicorns has been on an upward trend. The peak so far was in 2018, when there were 178. As of the end of May, that record has already been shattered, with 199 unicorns by one count. Of the grand total of about 500 unicorns total so far, the U.S. claims 196, China has 165, India has 52, and the U.K. has 16. By the way, startups will inevitably start meriting $10 billion in investment. And when that happens, some people have already decided they're going to call those companies decacorns. Companies valued over $100 billion? They'll be called hectocorns. $100 billion. Just think. $100 billion for a company that, by definition, will not have made much of anything yet. Sometimes it seems like some of these valuations have more to do with people fervently wanting to believe they've found something worth that much than they do with any intrinsic value those companies may or may not have. On the other hand, inherent in the idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy is that it has, in fact, been fulfilled. And that is a wrap for this episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. We'd like to thank the sponsor of this episode, Power Integrations. Visit this episode's webpage to find links to the videos from Power Integrations explaining green energy, gallium nitride semiconductors, and other subjects associated with advanced power technology. Power Integrations, innovation in power conversion. This podcast is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.